Good morning, everyone. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, fill our cups again this morning with your love and your light. Your word tells us often that humility comes before honor and that honor is something we achieve only when our pride is removed. This morning, provide us all the humility to accept what you truly ask of us and empower us all to hear the calling to walk with you along a road of justice and of mercy. Focus our ears, clear our minds, and align our hearts. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Micah, chapter 6. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balab, son of Baor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Or shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Zach, for reading. Zach, thanks for that prayer. That was, that was I needed that prayer, so thank you. Um, it's good to be together this morning. If you're new or if you're visiting, a special welcome to you. My name is Chris. I serve as the pastor here. Thank you so much to many of you for your kind words. If you didn't hear the news, we are expecting a third child uh, in the middle of the spring, so pray for us, please. Um, that's, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Um, we are thinking this fall about the intersection between faith and work. And I've said this each week so far, but it's worth repeating. We're defining work very broadly in this series. Work is just anything we do, at least for the sake of this series, that's not rest or recreation. So, yes, if you work a nine-to-five, then this obviously applies to your nine-to-five. But if you don't work at nine-to-five, if you're a stay-at-home parent... Uh, this, your work, right, is changing diapers and taking your kids to play dates and story time and trying desperately just to, just to pretending like those dust bunnies in the corner don't exist and all the busyness that comes with being a stay-at-home parent. Uh, if you're a student, your work is school. It's studying and it's going to class and it's doing all of those things. If you're retired, as many of you are, uh, your work is is all the things you do in retirement. It's volunteering, it's taking care of your family and your grandkids. Uh, it could even be things as simple as your visits to the doctor's office. In other words, anything we do that's not rest or recreation, we can consider to be our work, what God has called us to do. And because we're applying work so broadly, you could make the case that really this sermon and, and this whole sermon series applies to more than just work. It really applies to all of life. And so in some ways, we're shining a light through an artificially narrow prism as we define work. But because so much of life really is our work, 
you'll see how it applies to so much of life. This morning, we're asking the question, how do we reflect our faith in our work, specifically by pursuing truth and justice? Now, so many people, when you ask them, you know, if if you ask an average Christian, and maybe some of you have this sense, maybe not these exact words, uh, if somebody were to say, how do you express your, how do you be a Christian at work? The answer would be something like, well, I try to be a nice person, I try to be a, a kind person, and I try to be ethical. And those are not bad answers. Certainly, as Christians, we should be kind. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And being ethical is part and parcel of our faith. But as we've been seeing this fall, expressing our faith through our work and in our work is so much more than just being nice and being ethical. This morning, we're considering what does it mean to stand up for truth and to pursue our work with a sense of justice and mercy. And we're learning about this through an Old Testament prophet named Micah. Micah was written to God's people at a really dangerous point in their history. They were speeding towards a moral cliff. So let me give you just a little bit of background for the book of Micah, and then this will help us to see what this actually has to do with us, even though we live about 2,500 years after this was written. Very, very early in the Bible, God chooses one people. They're called Israel. And by the way, that's not geopolitical Israel today. They're different. But God calls his people Israel to be the people through which he will heal the brokenness of the world. And he calls them his chosen people. He says, you're my chosen people. But there's a problem with calling somebody chosen, and we've probably all seen this even in other people in one way or another. The minute somebody gets the sense that they are a chosen person, and the minute a people think that they're a chosen people, it goes straight to their head. That's never happened to any of us, I'm sure, but we've all seen it in other people, right? But nobody here. And they start to think either one of two things that are, that are kind of two sides of the same coin. They either think they're chosen because they must be really special. It's because I'm really special, I'm really good, God chose me. Or they think the re- reverse. Because I'm chosen, therefore, I'm, I'm really special. But the trouble is, either way, they think that being chosen equates to them being better than everybody else. And those are dead wrong. In fact, even in the language of being chosen, you realize that Israel is no better than anybody else. As you look, and it, you don't have to read the Old Testament very far to realize that God's people, the Israelites, are, are very surprising. I, I would call them a surprising chosen people because they're just as broken and just as sinful as everybody else. See, when God chooses a people, He doesn't set them apart so they can kind of sit over in the corner and point at everybody else and kind of nanana boo boo. Like we're, that's not, God does set his people apart, to be clear. But he sets them apart because he has a job for them. He sets them apart to work. And in the Old Testament, and you'll you'll hear a lot of uh, echoes of this in the New Testament and through Jesus as well, but in the Old Testament, God's job for his chosen people, the Israelites, is to, in a sense, be his ambassadors to the whole world so that the whole world, every nation and every tribe and every people group can be reconciled and made right with God again. The old saying goes like this, kind of old school preachers. I'm sure this has been a a sermon title, you know, a bazillion times over the years. Old school preachers will say, we are blessed to be a blessing. God blesses us so that we can be a blessing. We are blessed to bless. 
But the purpose of our blessing and the purpose of God's blessing on his people is to pay it forward, that they wouldn't just store it up for themselves, kind of keep it around for a rainy day, but that they would actually lavishly pay it forward. In fact, Bruce Waltke, who's one of the best Old Testament scholars um, of the past hundred years at least, he points out that when we see what God wants in the Old Testament, oftentimes this is synonymous with the word righteous. Righteous people in the Old Testament, his definition, he says the righteous are those who disadvantage themselves in order to advantage others. And on the flip side, when you see God describing the wicked in the Old Testament, the wicked are people who advantage themselves by disadvantaging others. Now, it's not exactly a zero-sum game, but there certainly is some zero-sum aspect to it, that God intends for us, as it were, to disadvantage ourselves in order to advantage others, which is an approach that flies in the face of many modern 21st century Westerners. But this is exactly what God is telling his people to do. He chooses his people, in this case in the Old Testament Israel, he chooses them not so that they can put their feet up and think that they're just the favorite son, that's not the case, but so they can sacrificially work to spread the news of God who loves them to all nations. Now in Micah, we learn that the Israelites have gotten this exactly backwards. And you have a whole list of indictments that God brings against the nation Israel. If you read Micah, the whole book, it's, it's not long, it's only seven chapters. It's harsh. Let me paraphrase what he says to his, his own people, his chosen people. Here's what he says. He says, you've used your wealth to serve yourselves instead of giving generously to the poor. You've taken other things more seriously than you've taken me, more seriously than you've taken God. You've used your positions of influence and leadership and power to pad your own well-being. And then you've had the nerve to go to church. It wasn't church, it was synagogue or temple back then. And you've been really careful to do all these nitpicky little religious things while you've been oppressing the poor. I'm paraphrasing all of this. But actually, if you read Micah, he's much more harsh than I just was right here. What's he saying? He's saying, my people, like I chose you and instead of you doing what I've called you to do, you haven't disadvantaged yourself to advantage others. You've disadvantaged others to advantage yourselves. And in God's economy, that's a heinous sin. Why? Because it violates the very reason for which he chose them. I chose you to spread my blessing, not to consolidate my blessings. You see? This gets us to our scripture reading. So now we're in Micah 6. And actually, Old Testament experts who know much more about the Old Testament in Hebrew than I do uh, tell us that Micah 6 is actually, if we read Micah 6, it's like reading a transcript of a courtroom trial. It's an ancient courtroom document. So think of this kind of like watching Judge Judy, right? But like Judge God. Um, In the the first section, you have verses 3 through 5. God reminds his people of several incredible events in their history when he proved his loyalty to them. Again, I'm going to paraphrase, but he says roughly this. He says, I set you free. You were slaves and I set you free from slavery in Egypt. And then I gave you leaders who were really skilled and competent leaders of incredible integrity. 
And then I saved you from all of these evil, powerful kings who just wanted to crush you. And remember, historically, Israel, I mean, we, we talk a lot about Israel because they're God's chosen people and we're Christians, but historically, Israel is a blip on the historical map. They are not an incredible nation. He says, there are all of these big countries who wanted to crush you and I saved you from them. And then you are still obstinate. And even in your obstinance, I brought you to your homeland that I'd promised you decades ago and actually centuries ago. Look how loyal to you I have been, God insists. That's verses three through five. Then the next couple verses, six and seven, this is, this is the, the new line in the courtroom transcript. First, God has spoken. Now God's people are speaking back. And they're saying, well, here's our response, God. We've bowed down to you. We made burnt offerings. We gave rams and oil and calves. We made all the sacrifices, the religious things that you told us to do. We even offered our firstborn as as temple servants. We did all of the religious things that you told us to do in your law. So what gives? And in verse eight, it goes back to God speaking and he says, yeah, but those things on their own are worthless. I have called you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Essentially, in in this little section, God is saying, I don't care about all the religious things you do. I want you to love as I love in all of life, to welcome who I welcome in all of life, to care for those for whom I care in all of life. Or if we want to translate into modern language, you know, year of our Lord, 2023, how would we say this? It's as if God is saying, you go to church, you do the Bible study, you pray, you give to your church, you serve on that board or committee, you, you know, whatever. Like, those are all good things. I'm not saying don't do them, but they are not enough. What does God really want? And he tells us right here in verse eight, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God in all of life. These are not Sunday morning activities, you might notice. These are Monday through Friday activities. Religiosity, if we want to call these things, the religious things we do, our religiosity without justice and mercy and walking humbly with our God makes us just like an apple that looks really crisp and shiny and bright red on the outside. If we hadn't had that late frost in the spring, we'd be looking at a lot more apples on the trees outside, I know. But imagine, right, this is the time of year, a really good-looking apple, and you bite into it, and it's just mealy and rotten through and through. I'm going to oversimplify here just to make clear the contrast. I know I'm oversimplifying a little bit. But God does not call us, God does not call his people to express our trust in him by going to church one day a week. God calls us to express our trust in him by being the church seven days a week. You see the contrast that God is getting at. And again, I know I'm, un, I know I'm oversimplifying I'm, and it can sound like I'm saying going to church doesn't matter. It does. It matters deeply. 
In fact, elsewhere in Scripture, we learn that, that unless, unless we have some just extenuating circumstances, illness or transportation or we're traveling or something, like you really cannot follow Jesus well without regular weekly worship. But here in Micah, God is saying as important as that is on its own, it's still not enough. Because God doesn't just want our religiosity as though that's an accessory to life that ties the whole outfit together. God wants our whole life. Following God is a whole life process. So with our time remaining, what I want to do is look briefly at these three aspects that Micah calls us to. Really that God calls us to through the prophet Micah. And we're going to think a little bit about how we can practice these things through our work. How do we practice justice in and through our work? How do we practice mercy in and through our work? And what does it look like to walk humbly with God in and through our work? Let's start with justice. Now, when we see the word justice or when we read the word justice in the Old Testament, very, very often, more often than not, it actually has to do with justice for people who are less powerful who are poor, who are oppressed, who are very vulnerable. So here's just one other example. In Isaiah 1, another Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, he says to his people, learn to do good, seek justice. There's that word, seek justice. And as if he expects them to say, well, how do I speak justice? He says, I'll tell you, thanks for asking. Reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, and plead for the widow. How do I seek justice? Stand up to the ruthless and defend the orphan and the widow. In other words, people who are not able to defend themselves. Now, the Old Testament is very clear that God himself is a God of justice. And in the Old Testament especially, justice means everybody gets a fair shake, especially the weak and the marginalized and the oppressed. God's heart for the vulnerable is unmistakable throughout all of Scripture. And if you'll remember, we said that being God's chosen people means kind of being God's ambassador, which means that when we act justly in everyday life, we model God's heart and character in the worlds where we live and work. So three or four years ago, I remember somebody from Middle Street sharing with me about his work. This is somebody who managed, had, he's recently retired, but had managed a large IT division for a, like one of these huge companies in Boston, several hundred people reporting to him. And out of nowhere, one of his employees asked him for a meeting. This employee was young. This is something somewhere in the neighborhood of 2019, I think. This employee was black. And he starts getting a little bit worried because she didn't say what the meeting is about. And he's thinking, what did I do wrong? And in the meeting, this employee tells him, you know, I've been watching for a long time and you've been consistently fair and thoughtful and helpful and generous and you've really helped me a lot. But you've probably also noticed that there aren't a lot of black employees at this Boston division of our company and there are very few black employees in the IT department. I think we can start a program in our company to help other black employees to move upwards and to kind of take on these new roles that they don't have. And I think you would be the perfect advisor for this program. Now, this company had not had a lot of success recruiting black employees to Boston, where one of their headquarters are. And again, as it turns out, there are very few employees of color in the IT department. 
It also turns out that the starting salary in the IT department is head and shoulders above any other department in this company, just like in most divisions, right? Like IT is just where the money is right now. And they started thinking together, how can we enlarge this pipeline for a group of people who historically have not had access to the same kinds of education and opportunities and create a pipeline and pave the way so that they can start to make a much better living? And this person from Middle Street leveraged his connections. He coached his employee. He had connections in the, the executive, you know, whatever, whatever. And so now he's getting her meetings with like the president of the company and they have to say yes to this because they know him and she pitches and they love the idea. And all of a sudden their HR department is on board and they're starting to figure out how can we do more and more and more to make sure that people who have not historically had the same opportunities in work and in this region can now have this opportunity. Like, that's biblical justice. You see, expressing our faith and work is, it's, it's more than just, it's not that it's not being kind and being ethical, but, but even just by pursuing certain systemic structures, we can pursue biblical justice. Here's somebody using the power and the influence and the position available to him to help folks who have historically had less power and influence and position. And if your work has you in a position of power and influence and position, then God's call to act justly is especially applicable to you. Now it can mean more than this too, but this, it certainly does not mean less than this. Because justice is just when everybody, especially when the weak and the vulnerable get a fair shake. And remember from Isaiah 1, it means defending the vulnerable. So it doesn't have to be launching this incredible company-wide program. It can be as simple as speaking up when a group around the, you know, at least now the proverbial water, do they have water coolers? They probably don't have actual water coolers anymore. But when the group around the water cooler is gossiping about another coworker who's not there, it can be as simple as standing up for that person who can't defend themselves. It can be pointing out when the wrong person is getting the blame for a project that went poorly at work. It can just mean something as simple as refusing to tell, you know, all those like little white lies that just become part and parcel of the job, you know. He's out, he, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, he's out of the office when he's right next to you. Oh, she'll be right in when you know that she's running 45 minutes late. Like, we don't even think about these things anymore. And, and we're not saying, it doesn't mean being a public warrior or a public crusader. In fact, most of the time, a quiet one-on-one -on -one conversation is much more effective. But no matter where and how, what does it look like to act justly? Next, God says, he says, act justly and love mercy. Now, mercy and justice in the Bible are very closely related, and you can hear that even when you, when you remember that justice means protecting the vulnerable. And the Hebrew word for mercy is chesed, and it's actually, it's such a guttural thing. Like if you try to say it, if you don't accidentally cough up a little bit, you're not saying it right. That's just kind of how Hebrew sounds. Chesed. It's fun. You should try it sometime. It's a hard word to translate. It's one of those words, you know, if you've, if you've studied another language, like every language has words that are not translatable into other language. This is one of those. And if you read English translations of the Bible, chesed is translated all sorts of different ways. Usually something around the word love. So it can be love, loving kindness, steadfast love. Sometimes it can be mercy like it is here. 
My favorite translation of this word chesed comes from the children's Bible that we read to our kids. Sally Lloyd-Jones, the author, uh, calls it God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's good. And it's, it's the kind of word that's so loaded that to translate into English, we need a whole phrase just for these two syllables. God's chesed is his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Which means it has the sense that not just of the magnitude of the love, but the eternity, like the duration of the love. It invites us to ask, like, when has God let us down? When has God failed us? And the answer to which is never. It's as if just in these two syllables, God is saying, I have never not been good to you. I have been persistent. I have been loyal over time. I've never wavered. I've never turned my back. I've never gotten tired of you. Interestingly, chesed is almost always used to describe God's posture towards us. But here in Micah 6, Micah makes a turn and says, now this is also to describe our posture towards the world. How do we do that? Again, there are all sorts of, it's a hard word to define, but maybe one of the best ways to think about it for the purposes of this morning is to think about it never gives up. It is persistent. So you know that like that person at your work, that person you just see over and over and again, whether it's your nine to five or whether, however you define your work, that you just get really fed up with. Like they just, they don't even know that they're pushing your buttons and they're really good at pushing your buttons. And, and they're, in your better moments, you realize like, okay, I just, okay, Lord, like I need to be kind. I need to be patient with this person. I'm going to be patient. And that goes really, really well for about the next 90 seconds of your next interaction. And then they do that thing again and you just, right? Chesed is somehow, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, finding the strength, which only comes from God, to persist in loving them, even when, especially when, it's really hard. I don't know if you know the story. Some of you certainly know the story of William Wilberforce. There was a movie made about him about 15 years ago, maybe more, called Amazing Grace. He was a British legislator in the 17 and into the 1800s. He was an MP, minister, basically their version of Congress. And he is the one who led the movement to abolish the slave trade in the British Empire. Now, William Wilberforce began his campaign to abolish the slave trade in Britain in 1787. British Parliament voted to abolish the slave trade in 1807. Do the math. This was a 20-year project. How often do you think he got discouraged? It was nonstop. 20 years. I like, I'm terrified to think of what a 20-year project looks like. And you know it only lasted 20 years because it was that hard, because it kept failing and kept failing and kept failing. But what did he do? He had been convinced by a man named John Newton, a former slave trader who became a Christian, that to be a Christian and to pursue justice and mercy 
meant advocating tirelessly, even if, if that means 20 years of work, not being sure this is ever even going to happen, to abolish the slave trade. It worked. And there's this great little end to the story that I love. Uh, after he got home from that parliamentary session in 1807, he called on, he visited his friend Henry Thornton, and he, he asked famously, Henry, what shall we abolish next? Now, if I had just spent 20 years getting something done and it finally got done, I'm putting my feet up and enjoying a beverage. I'm not asking, what shall we abolish next? This is chesed. Do you see? This is somebody who is persistent, who is loyal, who is dogged in his pursuit of justice for the vulnerable. By the way, in that question, most people, most historians think that he was implying, now let's take on the institution of slavery itself. And he died before any of this could happen. So he had successfully campaigned to end the slave trade. Now he wanted to end the, the entire institution of slavery. Love, mercy, be persistent, be loyal. What does the Lord require of you? Act justly, love mercy, and lastly, walk humbly with your God. In some ways, walking humbly with our God is the most straightforward of the three. It basically just means to obey God. There's <laughs> not a whole lot. I was struggling as I was writing, like, what else do I say about it? Maybe not much. The third point is just really short. Walk humbly with God. Obey him. And remember, we don't obey God in order to convince God that he needs to, he should be faithful to us. Remember, even the structure of Micah 6, it goes like this. God starts and he says, look how faithful I already have been to you. Look how loyal I have already been to you. Now be loyal to me. God does not tell us, he does not say, be, you be loyal to me first, and then if you've been loyal enough, then I'll reciprocate and be loyal to you. No, God says, I start the loyalty. It starts with me. It will never give up, by the way. And in response to my loyalty to you, now I invite you into a relationship with me. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1 and in Romans 16, he calls this the obedience of trust. As if to say you can't have trust without obedience. They work hand in hand. So it's kind of a catch-all. Now quickly, I wish, I wish we had more time to get into this, but I just I want to address one last question. The question is this. How do we pursue justice and mercy in walking humbly with our God? Like, how do we actually do these things? You hear about them, okay, and, and, and you, maybe you even feel inspired. You're like, okay, I want to be more just in work, and I want to find, way, find ways to express mercy. Well, I just, I just need to figure something out and work at it and, and maybe work harder. And as we've seen, even the structure of Micah 6 rejects this. Uh, we looked about a, a month ago at Galatians 5 and saw that working harder is not the solution, but being filled with the Spirit is. You see, we find that we find the true fulfillment in these commands, not in ourselves, not by looking within, but by looking to Jesus the Christ. And as it turns out, Jesus is the perfect embodiment and fulfillment of these. And it's only as we internalize Christ and only as he starts to fill our heart that we will actually pursue the justice and the mercy that God calls us to. What are the three commands? Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Let's actually start with the last. 
walk humbly with our God. But we can only do that because Christ has first come and walked with us. In John 1, John describes kind of who is Jesus and what is he doing. And I'm going to paraphrase here, but he basically says about Jesus, God put skin on and moved into the neighborhood. God doesn't make us move closer to him. He moves closer to us. He doesn't say, you come way out here and walk with me. He says, I'm going to come with you and walk with you, in fact. He says, you've been trying and trying and trying to reach up to me and you can't. Let me reach down to you. And very literally, literally, Jesus walked among us. We can only walk with God because he's first walked with us. And he didn't only walk with us, but he became the embodiment of truth, excuse me, the embodiment of justice and of mercy. You see, as Jesus hung on the cross and as he died on the cross, Scripture teaches us that he paid the consequence for our sin, for all the ways that we have not pursued justice and mercy, all the ways that we've advantaged ourselves at somebody else's expense, for all the ways that we've gotten exactly backwards the command that God gives us. And justice demands a consequence. And as Jesus hung on the sin, the Bible teaches us, Paul teaches us through the scriptures, that somehow Jesus was paying the price for our sin. The price was paid. Justice happened. And yet there was incredible mercy because God did not exact that punishment. He did not exact that consequence on us. He took it on himself. Remember how we said justice and mercy mean protecting those who are vulnerable and weaker than you? What did God do on the cross but protect those who are weaker and vulnerable than himself? And in Luke 7, Jesus kind of fleshes this out and he says, the one who is forgiven little will love little. And the implied corollary is the one who is forgiven much will love much. How do we pursue justice and mercy? We have to start by receiving the mercy of Christ himself. You cannot show God's mercy if you have not received God's mercy. You just can't. It's like trying to drive a car that has no fuel in the tank. But the more we consider and meditate on and soak in God's mercy for us, look how merciful God has been to me. Look at all the ways I fall short. Look at all the ways I don't pursue justice and mercy the way that he calls me to. Look at all the ways I don't walk humbly with God and look how merciful he has still been to me. When we start to understand the weight of God's mercy in our life, we will finally be able to share God's mercy with those around us. God's mercy is the fuel for our mercy. God's justice is the fuel for our justice. And he promises, he promises that he will fill us with his mercy if we will only receive it. Let me close with these words of hope. This comes from Micah, same book, next chapter, Micah chapter 7. This is the response of, I don't know if it's Micah or it's God's people, but they say this, who is a God like you who pardons sin, who forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. 
It's talking about themselves. You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. And you will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Amen.